This is the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. And it's my pleasure, responsibility, and absolute delight to go through all of the books published by DC Comics each and every week and choose my five favorites. My reasons are my own, and oftentimes they might either coincide with or completely contradict popular opinion. Maybe even your own opinion. I'll give you a little bit about the background, my favorite and least favorite story and art moments, and at the end, my score out of five. But the thing that really gets my interest is what your score either is or might be. Let's go ahead and dive right into Dial H issue number five, where the newest bearer of the H dial, or at least for the past five issues, he's had the H dial the most, a young man named Miguel, is now inside the Heroverse, where he is experiencing all of the secret origins that have become comic book lore in DC Comics. It starts with Bruce Wayne in Crime Alley, and moves on to Hal Jordan, and the Green Lantern Ring, Wonder Woman, and her trials, and then to Robbie Reed, the original bearer of the H-Dial, and his story. And we even get a bit of an introduction to the backstory that involves Mr. Thunderbolt, an adventurer who stumbled upon and searched out the many layers of the multiverse until he found himself in the bleed, but was stopped from pursuing any further exploration by the Speed Force wall. His story is one in which he is trying to accomplish something that will get him past that Speed Force wall. And... It's his origin that has brought him to this place where he, at the moment when Miguel met him, was still an incorporeal (laughs) figure. By getting the H-Dial back, he's able to rejoin his spirit with his body, which was kept preserved, and put into play the final steps of his plan. Robbie Reed has been working with Miguel as they've wandered through Heroverse, and in doing so has provided an opportunity for the young man to consider what it means to be at his age and holding the age style, something that Robbie Reed did when he was young and now as an older man wearing a cloak very reminiscent of Shazam's wizard cloak, points out to Miguel that there are so many elements to his story, and we learn that the series of letters that Miguel has been writing to Superman have actually not always been positive, uplifting, or soul-searching requests that they started out as, because Miguel's parents died in a plane crash, one that Miguel believed Superman would have been able to stop, but he wasn't here. And it's something that changes the nature of the hero worship that the series began with. But it also brings up an interesting point, which is when the operator, Robbie Reed, asks a question about when does an origin begin. And he points out that, in his belief, it's not about when a hero receives their powers or understands how to use skills or gifts, but it's when they decide to do something with that power or those gifts. And when he or she does that, that person becomes the hero that they will eventually be known for. And that is where their origin begins which is when Miguel has this great realization that maybe his origin hasn't actually occurred yet, that each time he's used the H-Dial, he might have created a hero figure, but because it wasn't actually based on his true desires, 
his true motivations or his own truth, especially when it comes to maybe his feelings about Superman, uh, which began so positive but have become conflicted ever since the death of his parents. Now that he's considered all of that, is there a possibility that we will see Miguel embrace and discover his true origin? thought it was a great story and that was one of my favorite story elements the idea of what is an origin or a secret origin and how does it define a hero or how does a hero's actions define their origin i found it to be really engaging and i love that it used the history of robbie reed to provide this description this explanation this introduction into origins and more importantly how they will inform the character I've come to know as Miguel and hopefully will come to know under whatever his hero name is once he discovers his hero origin. I really loved the lighthearted art. First off, regarding that story, Sam Humphreys, great work. Uh, I loved everything about the way this story was put together. Uh, I loved all of the uh, highs and lows. And I felt it ended on the perfect cliffhanger where... Mr. Thunderbolt, now reconnected with his body, is about to put his master plan in play. But Miguel also has an opportunity to become the hero that he was meant to be. The art is quite gorgeous. Uh, Joe Quinones, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, amazing job with the, uh, the art, including the cover. We had additional inks by Scott Hanna and colorist Jordan Gibson and letterer David Sharp rounded out the high quality really beautiful images in this there's this great vintage feel to many of the flashbacks whether it's wonder woman later green lantern or even supergirl or the flash and this faded sort of tint or tone feels like an old comic book page and it's such a lovely detail that contrasts with the very sharp present images of the modern characters Miguel, Mr. Thunderbolt, and the operator. There's also a great scene where Mr. Thunderbolt appears to have understood that he can work outside of three-dimensional rules or even two-dimensional rules and move between panels and around them and climb up and down and over them. And when Miguel does the same thing, it's a really fun moment that I, I think sort of shows how time and perception are different in a place like the Heroverse and how also this can be something that can be pushed and played with. And seeing not only Mr. Thunderbolt, but Robbie sort of push and play around here, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a, a really great moment. I love the uh, different shading and tone for when we see Mr. Thunderbolt's origin, which feels darker, and yet at the same time also has that very vintage, faded, old-time comic book feel to it. It really created this complete issue for me that I enjoyed a great deal. One side note that I also wanted to add in, both story and art-wise, is the character of Summer who journeyed with Miguel to Detroit for Justice League access to what they hoped would be some help from some heroes. Instead, just ended up being Snapper Carr, who wasn't really all that helpful until after Miguel had disappeared into the Heroverse. Summer was able to convince him to let her borrow the Supermobile. And there's a great scene of her flying through Gotham, which, if it's sticking with the current storyline in Batman, is currently being run by Bane and villains. <laughs> and Two-Face and a few of, of his goons start taking shots 
at Summer in the Supermobile. There's a great panel when she finally arrives in Metropolis where she's hoping to put her plan into play. And when she does, she crashes into the Daily Planet, but rewards herself on making it to Metropolis. I thought this was a great bit of comedic humor. I really thought it added a, a, a nice tone of levity, which was helpful because while there was a bit of joy and fun experiencing these origins through the eyes of Miguel, it was also heartbreaking to learn the story about his parents. And the lighthearted adventure of Summer was a good way to break up what could have really weighed down this issue. And instead, was an opportunity to remember what it is that Miguel is fighting for, why it is he's doing all of this for himself and for his friends. I didn't have any weak moments in this issue. I loved so much about it. I love the moment when Miguel is crying and asking more of Superman and wondering why it is he couldn't be there when Miguel needed him. And if there's one thing that every hero has to learn is that you can't always hope or count on people being there for you because as a hero you won't always be able to be there for others it's a difficult challenge but i really appreciate the way that miguel experienced learning it and i feel it's going to be valuable in his story moving forward this book was a solid five out of five for me i thought dial h issue number five did an amazing job told a great story and it balanced it and raise it to degrees of excellence with absolutely gorgeous art. Five out of five from me. Can't wait to see what happens next in Dial H. Let's move on to book number two. For my second book, I chose Batman, Curse of the White Knight, issue number one. Did you ever make a mistake and then afterwards question maybe how you do things or if there's a better way? At the end of Batman the White Knight, the amazing team-up of Sean Murphy on script art and covers and Matt Hollingsworth on the colors and cover colors introduced a story where Batman went too far and the only one who could stop him was the Joker. Or was it Jack Napier? As we pick up in Batman Curse of the White Knight, Batman is still questioning who he is and what he should be doing and currently operating outside of the public knowledge. He's aware that Given his mistake and the way he was proven wrong, that he is under greater scrutiny by the public, and yet at the same time, he's still Batman. He's still compelled to do the things that he knows he should be doing in many ways, believes only he can do. The Joker, not Jack Napier, who in, in Batman, White Knight, was the main hero, the Joker in The Curse of the White Knight appears to still be himself, manipulating the director of Arkham Asylum, and also putting into play some sort of nefarious scheme, which requires access to his old cell and a plot. There's a lot of heavy emotion, and it really opens some really dark corners of the Batman mythos. Alfred is dead, and the letter he leaves to Bruce is heart-wrenching and heartwarming. I really loved the way the image of Bruce is shown in a room staring at an empty bed and how beside him the text of the letter is scrawled out in what would only be the neatest of uh, 
recursive script. And the way that Alfred is doing his best to console Bruce is measured by the revelation that there is something underneath one of the floorboards, something that ties back to a story that dates all the way back to the founding of Gotham. And a time when Arkham was not an asylum, but went under a completely different name, and how its history is more closely linked to the Wayne family history than either Bruce or perhaps anyone in Gotham, even descendants of the Arkham line, ever actually knew about. This is a really great mystery. I love the way it starts out with the curious actions of the Joker, and then later the attempts by Batman to track those actions along with Commissioner Gordon. It's really interesting to see this version of Batman. It feels like a blend of the modern and the late 1700s. I think the great work with shadows and light is masterful, and it really illuminates the scenes when you want to have that starkness like in Arkham, and it also mutes them with that degree of emotion or deception or subterfuge that those darker tints do so much when they're done correctly and here it's really easy to see just how well they're being used and the benefit with the way that in some of even the most powerful or expressive panels for example one in the Batcave where Batman is looking around at everything he has and this tint makes the giant playing card, the giant coin, even the dinosaur, seem ancient, quaint, maybe even unnecessary, or childish. And Batman has to question just how valuable that might be, just what it is that this thing that he's seeing has contributed. There's also a great story going on with uh, the version of Jean-Paul, Azrael, and the fact that He's been diagnosed with a terminal illness and that he's also suffering from terrible delusions, which is really difficult. And I think that the art that I was talking about, the way the shadow and tone were used for Batman, translate masterfully to the scenes where Jean Paul receives the news and stumbles into a medical chapel and begins to fall among the candles, spreading flames, and in doing so, creates this very fiery experience. And I thought it was really well done, and I also thought that it added to the, the sort of weight that I feel is really noted right from the beginning of this issue. I thought, overall, this was a very complete book, one of those ones that I am happy to give a solid 5 out of 5. And I think it's a great way to pick up where so much of Batman White Knight left off, and also to show how the actions of that story are carrying on, and how through them a new mystery is being revealed, one that I believe is going to add a new layer to the Batman mythos and the possibilities that always exist within it. So that was my score and thoughts on my second choice for DC Comics News Spinner Rack. We need to take a quick break. There's bills to be paid, so ads must be run. But I'd like to thank you in advance for waiting past the ad, coming back and joining me 
for my three, four, and five picks for this edition of DC Comics New Spinner Rack. Thanks for your patience. We'll be right back. Hi everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) No. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. Thanks for sticking with us and coming back after that short ad break. We're picking things up with my third choice for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, and that would be Justice League Dark Number 13, written by James Tynan IV, Mark Buckingham on pencils, Mick Gray providing the inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lay, the letterer, with Gia March and Arif Prianto on the cover, and Dan Quintana providing the variant cover. Gorgeous cover for this issue, but the variant cover is what really stands out for me. I absolutely love the portrayal of Cersei. Uh, This is part of a series of variant covers featuring the villain who receives the offer at the end of the issue, whether it's tied to the main story or a separate story offshoot all to its own. But I really enjoyed the portrayal of Cersei in this variant, the, uh, the headshot just from the neck up. And I thought it did a better job of highlighting the short hair appearance that she took on when she was speaking with and perhaps helping out Zatanna and Wonder Woman. But it felt false when she was wearing a business suit while talking with them, since she's so much better known for providing a a more seductive style of dress. And while I understood her desire to show that she was using her skills to ingratiate herself among the women. It just didn't feel like the Cersei that I'd come to know. So that's why I really enjoyed this variant cover, and I really liked the way it offered up this very furnace-like appearance for Cersei. The rest of the issue was a really interesting development. It was one that showcases the origin of Ken Nelson, and some of the really unpleasant parts that go along with that. I mean, essentially, Ken's father had spent their life savings after universities and museums refused to fund his expedition into the Valley of Ur. Ken's father, pushed beyond what had been approved, found his way 
to an obscure area where he believed only the real answers could be found and that all others were not searching in the right places. Now, I love someone with a great headstrong personality who's going to push on and make things happen. And yet at the same time, I really felt that this showed that this desire was something that would lead to his downfall. It begins with young Kent, who is hypnotized or put under the spell of the entombed Naboo, who then guides, if not mind controls, Kent to release a lever that then releases a poisonous gas that kills his father, releases Naboo, and in one gorgeous splash panel, Naboo changes everything about young Kent, flooding his mind with all of knowledge that the wizard had obtained, and also changing his body into something perfect and clearly designed to be the vessel for Dr. Fate. It's a very unpleasant forge, not only the costs that were immediate for both Kent and his father, but the long-term costs that Kent describes when he would go off for weeks at a time, battling some unknown evil in another dimension, and how his wife Inza would have to watch and wait and wonder when he might ever return, or if leaving the Tower of Fate would prevent her from ever getting back to him. It's the reason Kent doesn't want to put on the helmet now, and why he also is trying to explain to Diana that there is a burden that comes with wearing it, one that even his young assistant, Khalid, won't take on, but one that must be worn if they are to have any help providing order and continuing to fight the forces that are threatening not only magic, but every other aspect of the world since the breaking of the Source Wall. And it's only one of two very painful tragedies to be experienced. The second part, Chapter 2 of this issue, is a story called Secrets and Origins, and it features James Tynan again as the writer, but with pencils by Daniel Samperi, Juan Albaron on inks, Adriano Lucas doing the colors, and again Rob Lay doing the letters. And it's a conversation between Zatanna and John Constantine. It's one that they've been avoiding, and that they have in the Oblivion Bar, because Zatanna has, since the disappearance of John, some issues ago, learned that he knew more than he was letting on, and had actually been a willing assistant, if not employee, to her father. John describes this as being a hellish existence, one in which he had not received the royal or legacy upbringing that Zatanna had, and had stumbled into magic in a very dark and painful way, that his father had helped him, but at the same time had forced him to do terrible things that he struggled to live with, and now did his best to drown in the bottle. Everything that was done by Zatanna's father is something John has had to pay for. It's part of the division in the relationship between John and Zatanna, and it's one of the reasons why he sees himself as being from the wrong side of the tracks, and she being from the right. Beautiful art. Um, it's clear that the penciling styles really show two different approaches to the characters in these two stories. Um, really love the portrayal of Kent, both mysterious and forlorn, and yet when a panel focuses on his features, much like they do Khalid's, and also Wonder Woman's, the lines are perfect, the shading elegant, um, and it's really well done in this light of the helmet of fate floating around and creating this mystical sort of 
feel. By comparison, really love the work in the Oblivion Bar for Secrets and Origins. Love the way Zatanna and John Constantine seem to be creating and casting shadows, even though the environment they're in doesn't appear to be changing its lighting in any way. Overall, absolutely gorgeous development. Really engaging scenes and panels and there's moments when just watching John holding a cigarette, taking a puff, and delivering three or four lines of dialogue can really be mesmerizing. The story about John and Zatanna comes to a head when they've both admitted the problems they're facing and that they're going to need each other, something that John is not ready to accept and Zatanna has already come to terms with. It ends with Satana saying that she's going to get help to bring back her father, and John's going to help, even if it costed them their lives. And then the issue ends with a, a, a great sort of example of Lex Luthor continuing to make his offers to the villains. Among my favorite parts in this story were the history of Kent Nelson and the way it really highlighted the tragic aspects of his creation, his origin, and how much of that has informed who he's been as Dr. Fate. But also, the the description really provides context for the weight of wearing the helmet, and why it will be difficult for either Khalid or any other member of the Justice League Dark to take on that responsibility. Art-wise, really, just really masterful work here. It's, it's hard to single out just one moment. I felt that from first panel to last, this issue did everything I wanted. It helped reflect on what had occurred, and it set the stakes for the next arc, and it also addressed some of the concerns that will be part of that storyline, and some of the challenges still remaining for the uh, cast of Justice League Dark. I really like this work by James the Fourth. I felt that his Justice League Dark run has been really well done, spot on in every way. And happy to give this book a solid 5 out of 5. I might be throwing a lot of praise on the books this week, but when they're this good, it's best to recognize how great they are instead of trying to find their shortcomings. And with that, we're going to step away from my third choice and move right into my fourth. And for that fourth choice is a title that has appeared on the Spinner Rack before. I'm talking about Freedom Fighters, and this time around I'm talking about issue number 7. This issue titled underground written by robert venditti who has done a, a masterful job with this 12 issue maxi series artist bruno labondo bringing these great characters that i love to life yet another appearance by colorist adriano lucas i feel like we just talked about him lettering was done by Anne world design with cover by barrows ferrera and lucas much like justice league dark the freedom fighters are also not in a course of action, but actually recovering from their last course of action, a process by which they were able to rescue Uncle Sam, and at the same time suffered quite a loss when Overman attacked them, and they lost one of their members, the Human Bob. They're now hiding out in Providence, Rhode Island, in a home of a couple who are barely getting by. They've just received their work privileges after 25 years, and if they're caught harboring fugitives, they'll be sent back and they'll lose their daughter, someone that they're hoping they can one day see again. 
but she's living in a place known as Detroit. And it's very different from the Detroit that I knew and have come to know growing up. The team is weak and struggling, but this meal from this sweet couple, a meal of some ration lima beans, the government rush, offers them a little bit of comfort and a little bit of nourishment. But tension still exists. When it comes to the best parts of this issue, I love this introduction in a basement and the tension provided by the husband, who is husband and father, actually, who's asking how much longer it's going to be. And when he does, he speaks with Black Condor, but points out that while it's helpful for them to provide assistance to the Freedom Fighters, when things get rough, only one of them will be able to fly away. Another moment that I really love is the scene where the human bomb is being placed through a series of paces, and he won't break. Nothing can break him. And his confidence, his arrogance, when dealing with the more sadistic of the two sons of Adolf Hitler, is really just a great example of his bravado, of his sense of will, and his willingness to take whatever they throw at him and be so Grant, Granted, they eventually knock him out with gas, but it's a, it's a really great moment that shows his fighting spirit. If you're going to be a freedom fighter, I think that's something you need. Now, the story has another great twist, which is when the husband, who's really been struggling with what's going on, makes a deal with the plastic man or elongated man of this timeline. He seems in some ways to mirror a little bit of a plastic man, but with the blonde hair and some of the angular features, it really reminds me of a twisted version of Ralph Dibney. Now, there's at least four of them, and they refer to themselves as the Plastic Men, but this twisted version of the Elongated Man is really all I see. The Plastic Men invade to take down the Freedom Fighters, but an interesting moment occurs when the husband, who allowed them entrance to his home, is shown lying on the floor, wounded next to his wounded wife, and that as she's lying there, she realizes she's dying, and he's feeling ashamed. And in this moment, as her last words are escaping from her mouth, she says that she understands what they mean, what the words from the old stories mean. And then she speaks a famous quote, Give me liberty, or give me death. And at that moment, Uncle Sam, who'd been struggling, and saying he just needed a little more strength, just enough to push past whatever sort of fatigue he's been fighting, gets that second wind. And it's an interesting comparison between the tragedy being suffered by the couple who gave him refuge and how their sacrifice is actually what gives Uncle Sam his strength. It's a really difficult moment at first, but it's given a new light when not only is Uncle Sam reinvigorated, but Phantom Girl figures out that she can actually transport not the team, but their enemies. And she proceeds to teleport each one of the plastic man's heads. And they disappear <laughs> somewhere else. And with a pop, they're dead. Lying on the floor with one panel revealing that their heads are floating off somewhere in space. Silently screaming. The team takes their leave. And it's a really great moment. And then there's a final panel in which it's revealed that one of the plastic men has survived. And he has a message. 
that they have planted a traitor amongst the group, and that soon all will come tumbling down. This was a really great issue, one that continues to feed on the sort of momentum that was created in the first issue, a team that's rebuilding, trying to keep fighting even when all hope seems lost. And now that they've gotten one of their key members, Uncle Sam, back, they're still struggling. It's not like they've overcome some great moment and everything is going to be smooth sailing. They've got Uncle Sam back, but now they have to find a way to make the momentum work in their favor and to see if they can help turn the tide. Because when this series opened, the Freedom Fighters were certainly looking like the underdogs. I love the concept of the traitor as well. It seems like it would be something uh, so easy to do with a character like the Human Bomb, and that with him, it would be easy to have you know such a powerful figure break from the torture. But instead, to have it be a more subtle act really illuminates the power of the cover, which features all of the characters and a question, who is the traitor? It's not a question that's answered in this issue, but it's one that's going to be lingering with me and hopefully readers as they pick this up. Those were my favorite story moments, and the art that mirrored them was absolutely gorgeous. Whether it's the scene of Hitler's son holding a uh, modified Gatling gun, tracer-style weapon, and using it on the human bomb, or the moment when he gasses the human bomb, and all you see is clouds of smoke, and Hitler's son wearing a pair of dark red goggles. Perhaps they're part of his gas mask. Perhaps they're just a sign of, well, personal style. The team hunkering down in the basement, the strain that's placed on a couple, these are all perfectly illustrated with these moments where light is streaming in through the windows from outside, but always feeling like an invader, like the dark is a quiet, safe place, and the one then the light comes in, it can reveal everything that's hiding. I thought it did a wonderful job of maintaining the stone, the tone, actually, of this story as well as this series one in which the world is not bright and ebullient it's dark and scary and it's constantly offering up new forms of danger i think it's only going to heighten the tension as the story progresses as the question of a traitor becomes more prevalent and as the final goals of this 12 issue arc are revealed and either accomplished or not I'm looking forward to the remaining five issues of Freedom Fighters. I thought Seven did a wonderful job. And I also think that this is a great series that, for me, provides not only the sense of hope, but also all of the struggles, all the challenges that come when trying to rely on hope in the most difficult of times and places. And that usually when it's not easy is when it's needed the most. I thought this was a wonderful job. Another solid 5 out of 5 for Robert Venditti, who, I'll be honest, on one Twitter post I accidentally tagged to another issue, is someone I've really enjoyed on a number of his projects. But it was with this Freedom Fighters series that I really had the chance to commit to one of his books and to see what was capable when a writer I like takes a team from my past and breathes new life in them. I think... This series only has more great things to reveal, and from what I can see, the only way is up. Let's go ahead and wrap things up with my fifth choice. And for my fifth and final choice, 
I was really pleased to discover and enjoy and share with you The Flash, issue number 75. Chapter 6 of Future Flash, the final chapter in the story arc of his year one line by Joshua Williamson and Howard Porter, featured absolutely gorgeous colors by Hi-Fi, the masterful lettering by Steve Warnes, and more Hi-Fi artwork and a little bit of art from Howard Porter on the cover. It was Francis Manipal offering up a gorgeous variant cover, yet another in this series featuring a villain who will be receiving their offer at the end of this story. Let's jump right in, and this year one story has focused on a time when The Flash was just becoming not only a Barry Allen who experienced speed, but a character who will begin to create the identity of The Flash and the challenges he'll face. After leaping into the future, Flash came back to the past, determined to prevent everything he saw from coming true, and yet all of his efforts seemed to create greater complications. Things came to a head last issue, when at the end, it was revealed that his current nemesis, the Turtle, who becomes a master of the Still Force in the future, brings future Barry and himself with the Cosmic Treadmill into the present. A fight begins, which at first, it does not appear that the Flash will be able to overcome. But he's not alone. And what I love about this issue is we get to see the foundation of his strength, Iris Allen. Well, Iris right now, later to be Allen. To those of us who have known and loved the Flash in all his versions, the thing that makes the Flash great is the person that he loves. For Barry, it's always been Iris. For Wally, it was Linda. It's an interesting battle when you have two opposing forces, like the Speed Force and the Still Force. While that may seem straightforward, there is a, a bigger issue at play, which is that Barry is the only agent of the Speed Force, whereas the Turtle has two versions of himself, one from the future, one from the past. They are both working together to create a link to the future that will solidify the Still Force and permanently defeat the Flash. Barry is completely engulfed in fear, and... When he is, he's forced to realize just what it is that makes him want to do more and be more, fight back against the turtle. And it turns out that it's Iris. And there's this, this beautiful splash page on page 9, where it shows this great line of dialogue inscribed with an outline of flash lightning. That says, I would leave time and space itself for. And we see the Flash really embracing his powers. And relying on the one thing that he believes is his greatest strength. Which is hope. Something his mother always mentioned to him when he was a boy. That Barry was always so hopeful. And that she believed that that hope would be the thing that would always sustain him. It's the hope that gives Barry his strength. It's the hope that allows him to fight back against the turtle to use his desire to protect and fight for Iris to propel him forward. And it's also what challenges him to, instead of running away from the still force, which is a really negative effect on his powers, 
to choose this moment to embrace that fear, knowing that at times he describes how he has run so fast that he would shake from fear, and that he's using that shake to turn his speed into vibrations, to dive into the very still force that the turtle is creating, and to charge through it, because by doing so, he can pull enough of the speed force with him that he can draw on enough of its strength and not fear the future, but fight continually against the present. And by doing so, can move everyone just a few seconds into the future, leaving only the turtle behind and thus breaking his hold between the present and the future. The play works, and there's this great moment after all the action when it's revealed that February 11th is the first Flash day, and that the Flash has taken down not only the turtle, but that it's occurred only hours after an entire experience with the trickster that had left Barry feeling confused, deflated, and defeated. And when the story ends, we see that Barry is right back with the metahuman who started this all before. His name is Steadfast, and he is a new avatar of the Still Force. And he's seen what his potential is, but he also believes that he can do so much more. And first, he wanted to show Barry this part of his past that Barry had forgotten, because he needed Barry to understand that time has been manipulated. He knows that Barry's speed has recently slowed. He knows that the coming challenge is something that Barry will need to be at full strength for. He wants to help make that happen, and in order for it to happen, he believes that Barry must remember what he's learned but what has been taken from him through time manipulation. It's a great moment when these two characters kneel down in front of each other, listen, and in the process, Barry learns a lot about himself, about his team, and about how the speed that he's been given is something that he can use to not only run faster, but that he can learn from so that he can run smarter. I also love this great scene where Barry gives the rest of the city the day off so he can rebuild the Flash Museum all by himself. And in doing so, we get the chance to see him have a short conversation with Commander Colt. Realize that the trickster events that he had been so troubled by it seemed months and months in the past had just been a few days ago and that when he thinks about time in this way he knows that he can do more than just react to it he can actually plan for it i thought the story was perfectly matched to a great character that i absolutely love in flash and i thought it did a wonderful thing which was to highlight his greatest strengths there's been a lot going on recently with the the different powers and forces that have been at play, and they've taken a lot of the, the headlines. But the headline that always rings true for The Flash is the story about what he fights for and who he's fighting for. And in this case, it's always been about Iris. It's always been about Central City. It's always been about the people that he loves, his friends, his family, and his city. I thought it was a perfect way to show what was important to Barry and what he'll need to rely on as he moves into his next challenges. And I thought it was a great um, way to balance the second part of this issue, 
the story of the offer, also by Joshua Williamson, with uh, art by Christian Ducey, Joshua Guerrero on the colors, Steve Wands again on the letter, and the story of how Captain Cold was part of the Rogues, had a team, and then later saw the concept of being part of a team twisted during his time with the Suicide Squad, and how that time not only twisted his mind, his body, but his memories, and also brought him to a place where he feels he's ending up much like his old man, someone who could have been more, but stopped, who was afraid of change. And now that he sits in a prison cell, just trying to get by from mission to mission, Captain Cold has to wonder if he's going to end up like his old man, trapped, afraid of change, afraid of taking risks, afraid, which is when the offer from Lex Luthor comes with perfect timing. These are two great stories that do a wonderful job, not of mirroring each other, but of contrasting each other, of showing all the things that make the Flash great and what he'll need to rely on when his next challenges begin to arise, but also how Captain Cold no longer has all of those things, and how without them, it's easier for him to join up with someone like Luther and to put aside the concerns he used to have for his team, his rogues, and instead to team up with someone with a larger scale plan, one that might actually give him the chance to achieve the goals that have always eluded his grasp. This was a great run for Josh Williamson on The Flash. I loved his year one story. I thought it did a wonderful job of bringing all of those best elements of Barry Allen and his world and his ethos and some of his mythos to life in a way that reminded me of a year one story that I had the chance to way back when that told me about a young Wally West and why it is that he keeps fighting with all these gifts he has as the Flash. Josh Williamson did a great job with the end of this arc, and I love the way it provided so many of the things that I love about the Flash, and in such a masterful way. Happy to give out yet another 5 out of 5 for this fifth book on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. And with that, we bring episode 19 of the Spinner Rack to a close. Thanks, as always, for listening to the DC Comics News Podcast and for joining me this week and every week here on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. If you're trying to figure out all the places you can find us, keep in mind that DC Comics News and its podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over, subscribe on your favorite platform, and then rate and review. I think we're five stars. Not just the Spinner Rack, but our sister program, the DC Comics News Podcast, where a team of writers, reviewers, comic book fans, enthusiasts of all things, including great story and great art, get together to chop up news about movies, streaming, television, comic books, and more each and every week on the DC Comics News Podcast. If you have something you want to share, like maybe your score for one of these issues or for all of the issues featured on the Spinner Rack, or you just want to tell us how great we're doing here on the Spinner Rack with me, Seth Singleton, or with the rest of the DC Comics News team on the DC Comics News podcast, you can find us on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just use the at symbol 
and DC Comics News. That's at capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N, E-W-S. Looking forward to joining you next time for episode number 20, the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. This has been episode number 19, and I want to thank you again for joining me and listening to me talk about one of the things that I've always loved sharing. Great stories, great art, great comics. If I can leave you with one last message, it's the one we love to sign off with. Remember, always read more comics. This has been the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 19. See you next time. Thank you.